Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Those are verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 28, which along with Psalm 26 are the psalms appointed for today, July the 13th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our study in the books of 1 Samuel and Acts, as well as in the Gospel according to Mark. And so we're continuing also to look at what does it mean to to live into the anointing and the calling that God has on your life. And and I believe every single one of us are called because I believe we're a priesthood of all believers. And I had a, a guy come to me one time that kept telling me this on and on and on and on and on that we're a priesthood of all believers. And, he, and he's exactly right. But I, but I finally stopped him from continuing to harangue me about this by, by simply saying to him, so what's your parish? What parish have you been given? Who are you sent to as a priest? So who are you serving? Um, because that's the thing is, is that we are all ministers of the gospel. We're all responsible for the gospel. Some of us have callings in the church that have particular responsibilities to teach or to preach or to equip or to um, do pastoral kinds of work, all those kinds of things that are listed as gifts of the Spirit. Some of those things we've made offices in the church. And so we carry out those responsibilities to the church and the world. And, and then there are others who, who don't have a calling in the church necessarily as a paid uh, representative or paid whatever in the church there we have callings outside but nonetheless we're all given a sphere of influence and, and and within that sphere of influence we're supposed to exert our authority our spiritual authority that we've been given to preach and teach the word to live as christians among people to be an example to some group of people whether those are your co-workers their friends at the gym their friends wherever else you might be friends in the clubs that you might belong to any of those kinds of things. And so how do we carry that out? And are we satisfied with the calling and the anointing on our lives? And are we willing to continue to walk in that, in humility, whichever role we have, whether it's a high role or, or a perceived low esteem role, are we content to walk in the calling and the anointing that we've been given? And I think that's the, the main thing that we need to deal with. And, and one of the first people that, that I think of in, in that regard as one of the most humble people um, it, it, you'll see in the entire Bible is Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan was, was an incredible military success. He was a man of great faith. And, and we've already seen him invading the Philistine camp, just him and his armor bearer. And, and we see again and again, Jonathan does brave and courageous things, but they're not just brave and courageous. They're, it's because he's filled with faith. He and David were so much alike. They believed so much the same things. They, they understood the world in much the same way. They saw the world as, as, as it's, it's the world against God. It's not, God against, it's not the world against us. It's the world against God. And if we're representing him in a particular situation, then we have nothing to fear. And we can step boldly into that and, and do things that nobody would ever attempt to do, just like he did with his armor bearer going into the Philistine camp, just as David did with Goliath. And so here Saul speaks to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan delighted much in David. And then he told David, hey, you've got to watch out. My dad's trying to kill you. So in the morning, be really careful. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself there. And I'll go out and stand by my father and talk to him. 
about you, and if I learn anything, then, then I'll tell you that. And so he goes out and he speaks well of David to his father Saul and says, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And when Saul's in his right mind, he knows these things are true. He absolutely does. He listens to the voice of Jonathan here. You hear that? Listen to the voice of Jonathan, because Jonathan was speaking for the Lord. And so when he speaks these things to his father, his father can hear it. And he says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And so Jonathan called David, told him these things, and brought him back in, into the presence of Saul again. So he's, he's been restored to the position within Saul's entourage that he previously had. And, and then, again, we have another war, and David goes out, and he's very successful again in this. The Philistines run and flee before David. But what happens? Nope. A harmful spirit comes on Saul. He's jealous again, and he's there with his spear again. Here we are. David's playing the liar. He's trying to throw spears at David and pin him to the wall. And, and I don't mean to catch his cloak and pin him to the wall. No, I mean literally pin him to the wall and kill him. And David fled and escaped, and so he goes home. Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch over him, that he might kill him in the morning. And Saul's daughter Michal, who is uh, David's wife, told him, hey, if you don't get out of here tonight, you're going to be killed tomorrow. And so she lets David out. He slips away. She makes a sort of an image, a dummy, I guess, is the best way to say it, and puts it in the bed so that when they come in, the, the messengers come in. She says, oh, he's sick. He's over there in the bed. You see, he's got this lumpy thing in the bed. So then, then Saul says, well, just bring the whole bed. Bring David and the bed to me so I can kill him. And they come in, and then they see, wait a minute, that ain't David. <laughs> That's just some sort of a dummy that's been put in the bed. And so Saul says, why have you deceived me? And thus let my enemy go so that he has escaped. That's what he asked his daughter. And she says, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? I mean, he, she's lying for David in this. But he escapes and he goes to Saul who, or Samuel, who is at Ramah, and tells him all this stuff. And then he and Samuel leave there and go somewhere else. Because now they're afraid of Saul. Not in the same way that Saul fears David, though. <clears throat> they fear that Saul's going to want to kill them. And, and that's, that's not something that's going to be allowed to happen. And so they leave. They leave and go to Naoth in another place. But, but Jonathan is risking everything. Jonathan's laying no claim to the kingdom at all. None. God hasn't anointed him. God's given him a role, and, and um, Jonathan is content with that role. He doesn't see that David is usurping his place and taking it in any way. He, and he sees David as a faithful servant of Saul during all this period of time. David is not trying to rally the kingdom to him. He, he's serving Saul, and he's serving him faithfully in everything that he does. And, but Jonathan is willing to literally lay down his life for David. He doesn't care about what position he might have. He, he's content in what God has given him. And, and that's the, the attitude we all need to take, is that we need to be content with who we are. And the best way to do that is to begin by recognizing who Jesus is. 
And so in this gospel lesson, what we've got now is, remember Jesus was going all over Galilee preaching the gospel, and now he's come back to Capernaum, and the people were told he was there, and so they gathered together, and he's preaching the word to them. He's teaching them. And, and then they bring, then some men bring a paralytic, and they can't get close to Jesus because the crowds are so great, so they get up on the roof of the house. Remember, these are clay. So he, he, they get up on the roof of the house over the portico where Jesus is, and they cut an opening in that, and they lower this paralytic down in front of Jesus. And then he sees their faith and looks at the paralytic and says, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, and we've teased about this in the past with with friends. You know, these four guys now are up on the roof. They've cut this hole. They've lowered their buddy down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're looking down and thinking it's his legs. That's the problem. But it's not the problem. And I don't believe that it is. I, I honestly believe that Jesus doesn't do this just to be provocative. I believe that this particular paralysis has something to do with sin, just as that leprosy had something to do with sin from yesterday's lesson. So I believe that here again, we've got Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, and he's doing it, not like I said, not just to be provocative, uh, because nobody forgives sin like that. I mean, the priests declare a, a sacrifice is okay to the Lord, and, and that if they follow the procedures and make the sacrifice correctly, then absolutely their sins will be forgiven. But they're, forget, they're, they're pronounced that way because of the sacrifice that they've made. And this guy hasn't made a sacrifice. Jesus just forgives his sins. And, and they rightly, the scribes who are there, who know the word, that's what a scribe is, somebody who knows the word. It's essentially a rabbi. It's a person who, who is trained in the word. And they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's exactly right. I can't, for, I can't absolve you of sin. You have to go to God and do that. That's the... Uh, the, the fallacy in, in this whole argument is, is that you can't, I can't give you forgiveness. I can hear your confession, and, and on behalf of God, I can say, yep, because I believe that you have truly, the, all the things that you have truly confessed here today, I assume that you mean that you want to repent of those. And so because of that, because you've done what God required of you, and you've put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who sins, who, who took on our sins on the cross— and his resurrection is the proof of the forgiveness of those sins, then in, in that way, I can tell you that, that your sins are forgiven because you have faith and you made confession. Here, this man doesn't seem to say anything. Jesus gives him absolution. And, and the question is right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus knows what they're thinking here. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and walk, and go home. And he did. <laughs> and it's, it, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So what Jesus' argument is to say, is, is, is it easier for me just to say to him, your sins are forgiven, or is it more difficult to say, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. And it, obviously, it's that physical healing because there's an immediate proof of whether or not it's true. And so he did. And so the, the argument is that the, the greater proves the lesser. 
And so the fact that Jesus had the ability to, to not only heal him also validated the fact that he must also have the ability to forgive sins, which again begs the question from yesterday, and, and that is, who is this man that he can do these things and say these things? He's pointing constantly to himself and proving to them that, that he is no mere mortal. And C.S. Lewis would take exception with that because he would say well, there's, there's no such thing as a mere mortal. But Jesus is, is something far greater than anything that's ever come before, anything that anybody has ever seen or even imagined. And that's the proof that's being offered here. And, and the question then becomes for the scribes and all the others who will come after, all the leadership in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them, it's going to come down to this, and that is, can you take the attitude that John the Baptist had, which is, he must increase and I must decrease? Are you able to do that? And the answer ultimately is no. But, but it's the recognition of this greater and higher power the, the, in the way that John recognized you know, I can baptize you with water, but the one who's coming later is so far greater than me that I'm, I'm unworthy even to tie the, untie the laces of his sandals for him. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so it's the recognition of Jesus. And, and, and that's where everything in this world begins for us as well. The recognition that we are in submission under King Jesus. And, and that we are fortunate, blessed to, to have received mercy from his hand. And that, that any place we have in the kingdom is more than we deserve. And so that, that allows us to be content with our situation in life. And, and here in, in the Acts lesson, we get Peter, who, who, who mostly handled that, fair, that well. But, but sometimes he would choke on leadership because he wanted to please people as well. He wanted to please the Jews. He, didn't, he, he knew what they were capable of if, if everybody got together and came against him. But, but sometimes he would speak boldly to the Sanhedrin. But when he was in front of just a group of Jews, sometimes then, then he would fudge on his commitment to baptism being the be-all, end-all. And that, that the circumcised party would sometimes look and go, I think he's on our side. I'm not sure about that. But here we have Herod violently lays hands on some who belong to the church in persecution. He killed John's brother James with the sword. And when he saw that pleased the Jews, because he wanted to please them, because he was concerned that, that any kind of insurrection or rebellion among the Jews would weaken his position vis-a-vis -vis Rome, because he was a Jew himself, although he was a pretty non-observant Jew. So he wanted to please the Jews, but he also wanted to please the Romans, and he saw the pleasing the Jews as one way to please the Romans because it kept the peace at some level. And so he, he arrested Peter during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is when Jesus was crucified. And when the, he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of guards, soldiers to guard him. Really? Peter was that dangerous a criminal? <clears throat> but he, this Herod knew about the resurrection. He put a guards over the tomb, remember? And they got set free. So here he, he quadruples down on it, puts four squads of guards over Peter, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So he's, he's holding him in reserve through the Passover because remember there's an option during the Passover to bring somebody before the Jews and say, what, what do you want here? Do you, do you want me to let one of these people free? He held him back and was not going to do that. So he didn't allow the people to choose whether or not to let Peter go. So he's in prison, but the, but the church is praying for him. 
And when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So you got sentries outside the door. You've got the door itself. Then you've got Peter in there bound with chains to a soldier on either side of him. And then an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And this is, this, it's, to me, it, it, it's hilarious the way he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. I mean, so you can just see Peter got kicked in the side by an angel and <laughs> said, get up. And when he did, the chains fell off his hand. And, and then the angel tells him, get dressed. Let's go. Come on. And, and they go out. But Peter all this time is not sure whether this is really happening or not or whether he's seeing a vision like he saw on the roof when he was um, prior to Cornelius sending the people to him. So he, he's not sure. You know, is this like Joppa? Is that what's going on here? Is this real or is it not real? And then they get past the first and second guards, and then they came to the iron gate leading out of the prison into the city, and it opened of them to it, of, to it uh, for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And now, so here's Peter been released from prison, not comprehending what in the world has just happened here, or where am I supposed to go? But, but he believes suddenly. He, he's aware that this is more than a vision. This is reality. And, and then he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. You'll see this John Mark at the end of the gospel of Mark, actually. Um, it's, it shows, he shows up at the uh, trial of Jesus, actually. And so he, people believe that he was one of Peter's disciples in some ways. And so Peter comes to him, to his house, and knocks at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And the people said, you're out of your mind. She said, no, 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 <laughs> it's him. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. Nobody believed it. Peter didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. The only person who does believe it's Rhoda, and she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off, not even letting Peter in. And then Peter keeps knocking, and finally they bring him in, and they're amazed. And then he tells them to be silent, and he tells them what's happened to him, and then says, go tell these things to James. This is, must be the other James, the brother of Jesus, who took a leadership role in the church during that period of time. And then he departed and went to another place. And so Peter's having to, to relinquish a little bit of his role in the early church to, this, to, to James, the brother of Jesus, who is the author of the epistle, James, as well. And so the, it, it's a confusing time. Peter is learning still, and what he's learning is that if God's called you, he's going to make this thing happen, and he's going to bring it to pass. He's given Peter the confidence that he has a mission to do, and that that mission will be complete um, no matter what, and nothing can come against him that will keep him from fulfilling the purpose and the promise of God in his life, and it's the same is true with you in your life as well. Do we trust God enough? To, to allow him to do things his way? Or are we going to make every effort in the world to make something happen?